0: And welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody's Bob here, and I've got the book "Just Listen: Discover the Secrets of Getting Through to Absolutely Anyone." And I know somebody—well, basically everybody out there has that person in their life. And I've got uh, Doctor Mark Golston with me today. And uh, you know, we're not going to have that. Dr. Honorific throughout the show because, you know, Mark's a pretty cool guy. We've been chatting for a couple of minutes before we turned on the recorder, and I know this is going to be one of our better shows. So, Mark, to get going, let's, uh, let's start with uh, what is listening? How do you define it?
1: Well, there's a difference between hearing and listening, and I confuse the two because sometimes people will say well, you're listening to me, but you're not hearing what I say. And other people will say, well, you're hearing me talk, but you're not listening to me. And so I don't think it really matters, except that one of the things that I do emphasize is the difference between listening to people and listening into people. So for instance, uh, if I was just listening to you, you asked me a simple content question, uh, about listening but if i listen into you part of what i'm picking up is that you you have a fair amount of your identity invested in this show and you want to serve the people who listen to you and you don't want to disappoint them and you would you would like anyone who listens in to say that was worth my time today and And so, I'm guessing, because we did speak a little bit, that you try to vet the people that you have on your show that will not only be a waste of your time, but a waste of your audience's time. And when you find those people, you may be hard-pressed to even put their interview up. And hopefully, when you find great people, you're very excited to put them up. So, is any of that accurate?
0: Uh, You know, you got about a 98% there, dude. Pretty good. Um, One of the most interesting things you said there actually was worth the time for them to listen. And I think that is a huge learning uh, that many, many people don't uh, really grasp the importance of the ability to have people engage with you at work and in life. Can we touch on that just a little bit? Absolutely. A
1: good friend of mine is a fellow named Marty Nemco. And he does a show, an NPR show in San Francisco, I think career or, or at work with Marty Nemco. And he uh, t- told me about the traffic light rule because he said I violated it. He said, you know, for an expert on listening, you say, you kind of talk too much sometimes. And I said, so what is the traffic light rule? And he said, unless you're invited to be an expert, unless you're invited to give a talk, in regular conversation, he said that when we're speaking to another person... You have 20 seconds to make your point and then stop, and the light turns from green to yellow. Then you have another 20 seconds when the light turns from yellow, where they're a little bit restless, to red. And at 40 seconds, you've overstayed your welcome. And one of the things he pointed out is be careful because when you're talking, time flies, and he is so right. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, well, you know, when you were saying that, I was going into remembering some of the conversations that I've had where I've totally over-talked, where I, I, I love to hear my own voice, blah, 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 and too much is going down. How do people train themselves not to do that?
1: Well, I think one of the things to do is if you're not face-to-face, if you're in a conversation such as we're having, but instead of an interview, you're there on the phone with someone, put a stopwatch in front of you. Just just put it up on your computer, uh, look at your uh, watch, and, and if you agree, in essence, with Marty's traffic light rule – you'll see the time just flying. I remember I went out on a hike with some friends of mine and I said, you know, it took so long walking out on the hike, but coming back, it it went by in an instant and they both looked at me and they said, that's because you didn't shut up on the way back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting because... I find the same thing happens. You know, when you're traveling someone, you don't know where you're going. It always seems longer. And on the way back, you have all these signposts. And it seems that you get back faster, psychologically, at least. Is that a part of the way the human brain works?
1: Oh, yes. I I think uh, what happens is most people are a little bit daunted by the unknown. Recently, I've been doing talks about how to think like Steve Jobs. And... One of the things that set him apart is he was uh, he loved the joy of discovery. The joy of discovery was probably as exciting to him as actually even knowing something even though a lot of people would say he was a know-it-all. And but a lot of people feel intimidated by discovering something new because rather than just enjoying it, they feel well, it doesn't match a pattern in their head or in their life, and they feel a little bit daunted by that. But after they've reached their de- destination, they feel somewhat more comfortable that they've gone as far into the unknown as they're going to. I mean, I know a number of people, it's sad, that when they start on a vacation, they, they, when they're flying to their destination, what they're most looking forward to is the flight back when they'll be coming home.
0: Wow. So why is that? It's just because they've got this, uh, they feel more comfortable in a familiar environment um, because they're constantly in a rut. I mean, that sounds like a horrible thing to say. But, you know, that a lot of people, because they're kind of like in this rut lifestyle, it's like, I go to work at this time, I do X, I come back, I do Y, and then I'm off to work again. And after a while, people have kind of run themselves into this rut. When they break out of that and go into a vacation mode, all that disappears, and suddenly they have a universe of decisions and choices, and life is a little bit more tenuous. Is that what causing that paranoia?
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think what happens is people get used to a rut, a routine, a comfort zone. I remember years ago, I wrote a blog on, uh, I can't remember, but it was something why a number of people don't take vacation and a number of people who aren't particularly happy in their jobs or their life. One of the reasons I've discovered in speaking to them when I drilled down and listened into them that they didn't take vacation is they said, what I'm afraid will happen is that after the first couple or three days, when I unwind, when I'm out on vacation, I'm afraid that I will look back at my life, my day-to-day life and realize that it's killing me. And so how can I go back to a life that's killing me after I've realized it so clearly and, uh, and, Rather than being motivated to change my life because I realize it's killing me, uh, not do anything about it. That that actually reminds me, uh, there was a book some years ago that Susie Welsh, Jack Welsh's wife, wrote called 10, 10, 10. It's, It's a lesser known book, but it's one of my favorite books. And what she said is when you make decisions in life, before you make the decision, think of how you'll think about the decision 10 minutes, 10 months, and 10 years from now. Now, I might add some other tens, but one of the things that she talked about is the toughest decisions is when you're taking a long walk and thinking about uh, what you'll think about a decision or where you are 10 years from now. And she said that was the decision when she realized she had to get out of her first marriage because when she took that time away from her regular routine and she imagined being there 10 years from now, it was just something that she knew she didn't want to do.
0: Hmm. you've mentioned several times um, inner thinking uh, getting inside somebody and for you being a, an expert and I've done this for many many years it's probably just like breathing but for people that haven't mastered that or just trying to get their head around the concept what are some of the steps that they can do to become better uh, inner conversationalists well
1: I've been blessed to have a bunch of mentors. Uh, Sadly, all of them have passed away. And my last mentor was a fellow named Warren Bennis. And anybody who knows anything about leadership will know that name. And one of his favorite sayings was, try to be a first-class noticer. And by that, he meant that when you notice something, it's different than looking, watching, or seeing. When you're looking, watching, or seeing, you're an observer. But when you're noticing, you're a participant. So, for instance, as I'm in this Skype session with you, and I see a picture of you, and I see you uh, the picture is your head is kind of tilted with your eyebrows up. I don't think I noticed that. And I looked at the expression on your face, and the expression on your face is almost saying... Really? You got to be kidding or something like that. But, uh, but I noticed that. And so I think if you can practice noticing, it actually causes you to leave yourself to connect with what you're noticing. There's a, there's a company I'm not sure you've ever heard of it called IDEO. IDEO and it's one of the top design innovation companies it's in I think it's in Silicon Valley I think it designed the first mouse after Steve Jobs got the idea from Xerox park but one of the things they do uh, to innovate design is IDEO is filled with sociologists psychologists computer scientists uh, biologists and and they basically say go out in the world and notice what Causes people to smile, and notice what frustrates people. Notice what they're looking at, and then come back and report what you notice from your perspective. And then, uh, and it's a wonderful company, and I would I would do anything to be part of that brain trust because I think when people come back from their different perspectives, and you hear what people notice, it, it would just amazingly enrich. Uh, what you're noticing. And the same is true of listening. Uh, There are many quotes that I love, and one of my favorite quotes comes from a fellow named Wilfred Bion, and he was a psychoanalyst from the last century. And one of the things that he talked about with, with regard to listening is he said, I believe the purest form of listening is to listen without memory or desire. And what he meant by that is When we listen with memory, we have a preset past personal agenda that we're trying to plug someone into, and when we listen with desire, we have a preset present or future personal agenda that we're trying to plug them into, but we're not really listening to where they're coming from, and so I think if you can be sort of aware of this, and a step that people can do. How's that for a long tangent? Peter, <laughs> and he comes back around. <laughs> there you go. That, that was more than 40 seconds. Boy, <laughs> your light was, was flashing red. Get, get to the step already, Mark. <laughs> uh, I think this, a good step is to ask yourself after you've had conversations with people, um, if I was to rate, if I were to ask that person, did I really get where they were coming from? Did I get what was important to them? how would I rate myself? And what would what's really a good practice is to tee yourself up before you go into a conversation and, and make an intentional commitment. Uh, what I want at the end of this conversation is that whoever I'm with will want more of me sooner as opposed to less of me later. And and then to rate yourself, how well did I achieve that? Mm.
0: Well, you, you know, and, and this is coming up again and again as I'm listening to you, is you have to be very in the present. You have to be very aware of the reality around you if you're going to be able to be a great conversationalist. Um, and also have the ability to kind of let go. I, I'm thinking back to some of the best conversations I've ever had. And there's nothing like there's no um for me that there's no need to get to the next question i'm listening i'm engaged and then it's almost like you triggered as soon as that person winds down winds down uh your next question comes in or your next statement comes in and you have this beautiful back and forth flow for me those are the best conversations and they're so rare
1: well, there's another term. I forget who came up with this, but but try to be a pluser and not a topper. And a pluser is someone who builds on what the other person is saying or just said and adds value to it. Uh, I, the person who was telling me about it uses the acronym WAIT, W-A-I-T, before you talk, which stands for why am I talking? <laughs> And a pluser adds value, whereas a topper hijacks the conversation to it being all about them. And the worst case scenario is it's not only all about them, but they're trying to top you. You know, if you went to Calgary for your vacation, they went to Fiji and they're going to make you know uh, and they're going to let you know about that.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, that what's driving. Why is that person like that? I mean, for for and and your. I know your book gets into it, but why do people have to communicate that way? Is, is that because they were brought up that way? It, it's it's a part of the way that they they've survived w- with their parents and then survived in their first jobs, and it's just been reinforced and reinforced and reinforced, and that's why they're that way.
1: Well, I, I think you hit on. It. Sometimes, uh, depending on your family sometimes you, if you had many siblings many people to get to get a word in they had to jump in they had to interrupt each other uh, and people didn't take turns or they learned that in their job um, psychologically something that because I'm a student of why people do these things inwardly is not just outwardly um, sometimes I've discovered and I will do this and I'm willing to bet bob I'll I'll bet you anything you want to bet that you understand what I'm about to say. Sometimes when we're talking and we begin to talk, in the first 20 seconds or 30 seconds, we're actually being relevant. But then after that, it feels like we're just getting stuff off our chest. This feels good. As long as we're talking, we're relieving stress. And then I think what happens is subconsciously we're aware that we've worn out our welcome and we're, and we're making a bit of a fool of ourselves. And so to make it worse, we talk even further, trying to pull the other person back with something that might be relevant. But by that time, the cow has left the barn and uh, we would do well to just quit while we're behind.
0: <laughs> or not care at all. That's, that's right. I think that's where uh, alcohol uh, becomes the the great liberator of a conversation. I find that a lot of people, especially in in parties, if you go there early, it's a completely different environment than an hour later. Once uh, people have had a couple of drinks, they've loosened up. The problem is it's based on losing control instead of having more control and being able to uh, have a better conversation by understanding and being conscious. By doing alcohol, you're actually uh, suppressing a lot of your uh, emotion and feelings. So do you feel that uh, when you're in a cocktail party environment chatting, the conversations are less important because you're talking with people that are less conscious or it's even a more interesting and sophisticated dance that you're doing
1: well i think it depends how much you've you drank (laughs) (laughs) because you can say you can have a wonderful time and not remember anything being less in control you know there's a there's a negative part of that you know to being out of control in a bad way but there's something positive about being animated and spontaneous so say more say a little bit more about that bob
0: for people that are in a conversation, they've come into a party situation, they've gone through that nervousness, maybe they found somebody that they've known, they've had a couple of drinks, and now they're exploring, so they're, they're breaking away from their rut and they've gone into an environment, uh, the conversation jungle, for use for a better metaphor. And they're not afraid of running into a tiger and they're not afraid of running into uh, somebody that's a little more aggressive in their conversation. How can they become a better conversationalist without having to rely on things like alcohol as a crutch?
1: Well, years ago, I'm painfully shy, which means that when it comes to, and I don't want to call it small talk because I don't want to diminish it, there's a certain kind of talk that I'm just plain lousy at. And uh, it's interesting, I was giving a keynote at a Mattel women's conference, and I I said to them, I said, I need to do some uh, psychological housekeeping here, uh, which is that I'm painfully shy. And what that means is that I didn't come last night to meet the other speakers uh, or other people here. Because if, if I did, uh, you would say, who's, who's that guy staring at the onion dip? <laughs> And I would be awkward. I wouldn't inspire confidence. But because I'm here and I'm now in front of you, I'm a role-specific extrovert, which means that I'm shy, but I need to put aside my shyness so that I can communicate something with some confidence. Otherwise, you'll confuse my shyness with self-doubt. And so I'm putting that aside, and then after I give my talk and there's cocktails, I'll have two glasses of wine and I will talk to anyone. <laughs> 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 and so um, uh, I, I think you also raised something that I'd never thought about. And I love to discover things uh, when you were talking about that when we have a drink and it loosens us up, I can't say for sure, but I'm going to think about it after our interview. I have a feeling that it loosens us up to talk, but it doesn't loosen us up to be better listeners.
0: Mm, probably worse listeners.
1: I think worse listeners, you know, because uh, because you have to concentrate, and the alcohol uh, frees you up to speak, but it ne- doesn't necessarily help your concentration. So mm. that would be an interesting thing. In fact, you know, uh, you'll see this sort of a pattern that I mentioned. You know, to to improve yourself, challenge yourself to how well you did, and I think the next time I go to a party, I'm going to ask myself. How much did I remember about what anyone else said? But again, getting back in one of my enormous tangents about how do you improve these things without alcohol, you probably forgot the question or it's right in front of you. There's something that I mentioned uh, that in, the, in uh, the book, Just Listen, which I use to overcome some of my shyness in going to office functions. And it's what I call FTD delivery. What had happened is I remember that I went to uh, high school reunions with my wife, and I didn't want to be nagging her and saying, when can we leave? Because I really didn't know anyone, and I didn't want to talk to anyone, and I didn't want to actually rain on her parade. So there was one time years ago when I said, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to enhance her time. And I, and and here was my challenge. I'm going to speak to five people, at least five people tonight and two or three of them are going to be very grateful that they spoke to me. And by the end of the evening, three of them took my hand with two of their hands, looked me in the eye and said, you know, it was really great meeting you. So afterwards I asked myself, what the heck did I do? And That's when I discovered what I call FTD delivery. And FTD stands for feelings, thinkings, and D stands for doing, actions. And what I realized is that when you ask people about something they thought, felt, or did, or would do, people feel understood by you. And it's interesting. This will be a little bit sexist, uh, but it's out of my mouth there, so I can't take it back. I think when you're talking to many men, you want to talk about what they thought and what they did, not so much about what they felt. When you're talking to uh, women or people who are more comfortable with emotion, you might want to talk about what they, what they felt and what they did and less about what they thought. And it's a way of aligning yourself with the, their style, their style of thinking and processing things. And so when you're with a man, stay away from the F word, the feeling word and when you're with a woman it's not that they don't like to think it's just that they prefer often to share about something that that they felt and and, and then talk about their actions
0: Hmm. Hmm. I want to dig into this book because uh, it's fascinating it's so chock-a-block and uh, you know there's many books that I I have uh, had the opportunity to, to experience and they're like these long chapters and they go on and on and on. But your book, it, they're very short, very concise, very, very focused, almost like a conversational style. Now, was this done on purpose?
1: Well, what I realized is the people, and, you, and you've heard this and I've heard it, people remember stories, they don't necessarily remember concepts. And so... Just listen. I think the richness of it and something I'm very humbled by is just the enormous number of book reviews on Amazon. And whenever I'm feeling down on myself, I'll read some of them. And what touches me most is when people say, I've read this book five times and it's helped me not just with my business life, but my personal life. And I think really what it is, is people go back to the stories and they'll A dog ear, a couple page, because they relate to the story, they see themselves in the story, and then hopefully the tips or the insights that come out of the story, Mm -hmm. they'll be able to apply to themselves. In fact, someone gave me a nice compliment and they said, you know, the the best insights in life are ones that are hidden in plain sight as opposed to ones that are so brilliant that only brilliant people can use them. And so I th- my hope is that as people read the, read the book and the stories, that when there was an insight or a tip, it was one of those hidden in bl- plain sight things you could use. And why that's important, as we circle all the way back to the beginning of our interview, is that people are creatures of habit. And when there's something that's hidden in plain sight… And it only takes, what, six degrees of separation from their comfort zone into trying something. They'll do it as opposed to something that is just off the charts brilliant, but only a brilliant person could use it.
0: Hmm. I wanted to ask you. Uh, and I ask this of all the authors, when you're gathering all this information and putting it down into written form, because there's a big difference uh, in how you perceive something when it's in your head and once you start organizing it and putting it into book form, for you, what was an aha moment? uh, The moment that something you already knew was uh, a truth, but it just became a bedrock reality for you?
1: Well, something that may be not unique to me, but I think is certainly a part of who I am. Uh, I keep a journal, and afterwards I'm going to s- uh, send you a picture of my cabinet, which is right next to me, which is all with all these journals are jammed into it. And I believe I'm on volume 232. So I have over 40,000 pages. And I think what happened is when I started keeping the journal in 1976, uh, it was just kind of a journal. I mean, it was probably something that happened. And uh, I had sort of a challenging time in medical school. And in fact, something that is probably one of my greatest, pers- maybe my greatest personal triumph is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I didn't drop out to see the world. I think I hit a wall mentally. And, uh, and so it wasn't the happiest of times. But my first journal, uh, when I finally graduated, it, and, I didn't, and, I, and I wasn't a writer, the first thing I wrote in my first journal was, I can't believe I've made it through. They have released a madman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and they were right <laughs> they were right <laughs> well you're mad about conversations for sure
1: well you know it's you know I, I uh, I've recently launched something I don't know if you've ever heard of the site Patreon
0: Oh now that rings a bell
1: yeah well Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com it's a it's a place where fans can support creatives you know mostly artists poets musicians but uh, there's a videographer who said to me, you know, Mark, you're a, you're a serial social creative, meaning, you know, you're not a musician, you're not an artist, you do, you're not really a poet, but you're very creative about wanting to help the world. And, and actually, so we, we launched a campaign called Healing the World One Conversation at a Time. And the idea is that as I look out at the world, I don't see too many people talking with each other or being very receptive to what they're hearing. And receptive listening is different than responsible listening. Actually, there's four levels of listening. There's removed listening. That's when you're just tuned out. And if you're a foolish husband, you might multitask and... When the uh, when your spouse says you're not listening, you might put down your, I guess it used to be your newspaper. Now you'll put down your iPad and you'll smile glibly and parrot back exactly what they said. And you're if you do that, you're an idiot. <laughs> and so that's remove listening. And then there's reactive listening in which you're it's very defensive. And the third level is kind of business as usual is responsible listening. And that's when someone asks you a question and you respond to. It. But the most intimate is receptive listening. And receptive listening is, uh, it, it, it's, and you can tell which one you're doing by the body language of the other person. When you're, when you're demonstrating remove listening, they should be offended because you're talking over them or, or you're, you're tuning them out. Uh, when you're demonstrating uh, reactive listening, you know, they're getting feisty with you. When you're demonstrating responsible listening, it's, you know, you're both nodding from the neck up. But when you demonstrate receptive listening, what, what, you, what you notice is that as the other person is talking, they relax their shoulders and their necks and they lean into you and they exhale, does that make sense intuitively to you?
0: Yeah, well, it, it you know by exhaling that means that they're relaxed and they're in much more receptive mood, and it's not a confrontation. You know, you, a lot of times you're having a, a conversation with somebody, and it's like a battle to try and get in there because they 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 talk over you because they're so excited about what they're trying to communicate, and hence not communicate at all.
1: Absolutely, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. They they relax and they exhale, because they're leaning into, they're leaning into the safety of your being non-judgmental and instead being receptive and interested. Uh, another one of my favorite quotes from Warren Bennis was: "Boredom occurs when we fail to make the other person interesting."
0: How do you have better conversations with people that are struggling with conversations to help them have a better conversation?
1: Well, one of the tips was to use the FTD delivery is to ask questions. Well, how did you feel about that? What did you think when that happened? What did you want to do? And so when you do that, that can give you a process to deal with your own anxiety. And you go back and forth almost like you're tacking in a sailboat between thinking, doing, feeling. And as you're doing that, you'll see that the other person is uh, uh, is quite relaxed. Mm. And uh, you can do that. Something else, uh, and, and I think it's probably part of my favorite part of the book, uh, the, the, the favorite tips. Th- there's talks that I give to consultants called How to How to Turn a Conversation into Getting Hired. And in those conversations or in those presentations, I often ask consultants, you know, after you've asked someone questions and they talk and they start to ask you questions, what do you do? And they say, well, I try to give them a responsible question. And my response to that is never, never, never answer any of their early questions. The reason being is... If you do that, you will be like all other consultants, which means you will have had a responsible uh, but pedestrian conversation. And in the book, I talk about conversation deepeners. And I've actually used a few of them with you. And a conversation deepener would mean focus on when the other person is saying something that has some emotion, hyperbole, uh, uh, increased inflection, or if you really get into it, if you say this is, as some people have said, this is fascinating to notice that. Notice when people use adjectives or adverbs, because an adjective is a way to embellish a noun, and an adverb is a way to embellish a verb, and it's a way of the other person revealing something that they uh, have a spin on. So, I did that with you when I said, say more about the animated. So, you know, you talked about animated conversations and you said something about their not being in control. So, uh, I actually used one of those and and I meant it genuinely, but I also wanted to demonstrate in our conversation what it would look like to invite people to go deeper. And so, Uh, Other conversation deepeners besides say more about blah, 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 blah are uh, when someone pauses to say really, but really not in a a harumph way, not like really, but really in a way in which you're inviting them to say more. Something else you can say, which which is the old tool of many a psychotherapist, which is to say, and you just actually said that, you actually used it about. In the last three minutes, she went, hmm. And what hmm means is I'm listening. You're relevant. You're not wasting my time. Uh, keep talking. Uh, and I'm actually tasting it. You're doing fine.
0: Yeah, it's one of the toughest things being an interviewer is not to say hmm all the time because uh, when you start listening to the podcast, it becomes quite annoying if somebody's over-hmming. Because it becomes uh, misingenuous or disingenuous? Disingenuous.
1: Ooh, misingenuous. I've never heard that. Uh, (laughs) Write that one in. Uh, That's that's worth a blog, Bob.
0: Yeah, exactly. I felt he was misingenuous. He totally missed the conversation.
1: (laughs) And and then I dissed him. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, I want to talk about how to tackle this book because there is a ton of info in here, dude. So, how would you recommend people read the book should they go cover to cover should they read the front part learn about what a great conversation is the structure and then jump into the section they think is most relevant what would you recommend
1: uh, any and all of the above so it depends on your style of reading books uh... there are some people who by nature read something cover to cover because they tend to be organized that way and maybe a little obsessive that way and you could do that uh, and I think the majority of people find it a reasonably easy read and so they say it goes pretty quickly and so they may do it that way and then people uh, – what do you call it? Dog – what do you call it when you
0: – Dog ear or something or bu- – bu- uh, I know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, uh, about one of the pages. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Dog, the ear. Book. Dog, dog ear. the Dog ear. of the damn book. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Dog <laughs> ear of <dog laughs> the damn book. And so th- I think that's what people do is they go back and – or they put little post-it notes – uh, something that I'm fascinated about, but the editor said, Keep it to a minimum. although when I give talks, it's one of my uh, something that I share that I'm passionate about, is this uh, I, I'm fascinated by neuroscience. And I'm not a hard researcher. What I do is i'm a I'm a serial noticer, and there's a concept that I've uh, talked about in the book, and it's called the Mirror Neuron Gap. And the mirror neuron gap, what that refers to is that in our brains, and they were first discovered in macaque monkeys, there's a region that has what are called referred to as mirror neurons. And when they were discovered in monkeys, they were referred to as monkey-see-monkey-do neurons because uh, these are fascinating neurons because they light up when the monkeys would be imitating someone else. That's why they were called monkey-see-monkey-do. And then But they've been discovered, especially with fMRIs and all this, that they seem to be associated not only with imitation, but with learning and empathy so that when someone cuts their finger with a piece of paper. And that's such a visual thing, just even imagining it right now, if you just had a visceral response, that was your mirror neurons. What's even more fascinating is that they seem to be associated with autism and because autistic individuals are not able to mirror the outside world. And the, the mirror neuron gap is, uh, is my term for what is it like when we have mirrored the outside world and conformed to the emotional and psychological needs of others and how that develops a hunger in us to be mirrored. So, Which is why I think when someone in an unsolicited way is kind or caring or are you okay, it touches us. And in fact, sadly, if you live a life in which no one's doing that, uh, you will actually start to tear up with the relief to uh, to your loneliness or aloneness. I remember years ago I was uh, when I was a practicing therapist, I was seeing this woman in her late 80s and she didn't have any children and she didn't really have any friends and um, she would go to the market and I would see her every two weeks and she would come in and she would say, you know, when I see you, it's the only time in my life when I hear the sound of my own voice. That's a hmm. I mean, it was so poignant. But I think you just even, just in picturing that, you could, you could feel the mirroring and the relief that it gave this individual. So, uh, so I think what happens is when you close the mirror neuron gap, One of the reasons people tear up is they go from feeling alone to connected. And when I do my presentations, one of the things that I offer is uh, hopefully you will think about listening different than you ever have before, but you will also think about movies differently. And then I showed some of the most touching scenes from movies. I, I've recently changed them because I realized I was dating myself to show, show the want to have a catch dad scene from Field of Dreams. You know, do you remember that movie? Yeah, and, and, and the idea is that many of the movies that make us cry, it's because there has been a gap between two characters and we feel the tension and we vicariously live through them. And then when it's resolved at the end, we cry because we vicariously see the gap between those people being illuminated.
0: Plus they're using subsonics. You know, there's that great um, chord that they discover that will actually evoke emotions, and that's used way too much in in movies to enhance that emotion. Um, I'm... I'm fascinated with uh, when people do watch shows, how different people are affected differently. And uh, I remember way, way back in the day, I went to an event with a friend of mine who's a a movie critic, and we went to see Woody Allen. And I love Woody Allen. He cracks me up. Now, I'm not as well-read as most scholars. So, for me... I didn't get a lot of the references, but I got the timing and I knew it was funny and it would still crack me up, which would infuriate my friend. He said, Bob, how can you laugh uh, at such inappropriate times or when other people are laughing and I know you don't really truly get it? He says, yeah, but I enjoy it. I get it. Why can't I laugh at something I don't understand? And for him, he just couldn't get his head around that.
1: So with that person, you have to do t D F think, do, feel. Because <laughs> what he was saying is if you can't understand it, how can you have this experience? Because what he was saying is that he needs to understand something in order to experience it. And he was a little ticked off at you because it probably means that you're able to, you don't have to be so in control. You don't have to be so intellectually on top of something to enjoy something. For what it is.
0: Mm. I wanted to ask, you know, in an office environment, there's all sorts of different types of people. And you know, it several times in this conversation you've mentioned these acronyms that are specifically designed for different personality types. Is there a a is there a way of figuring out what type of personality you're talking with in a conversation or you kind of have to have a couple of conversations with that person and then say, okay, this person is very analytical. I'm going to have to approach him this way. This person likes to talk too much. This is the way I'm going to have to approach him.
1: Well, there's a whole science which you probably are aware of, called NLP, Neurolinguistic Linguistic Programming. And the whole approach to that is that people have various styles of communication. Some will do it through visually, some will do it auditorially, and some will do it kinesthetically. And they will use such words to reveal which one is their preferred style. So, so if someone who uh, is visual, you might uh, speak to them, I see what you say, uh, could you see it this way? Whereas someone who seems to be auditory, uh, you might say, I hear what you're saying, and uh, uh, what do you think this would sound like? And then if you're kinesthetically, and you get a sense, and and they'll often use words that way. So the whole idea is when you can match uh, to their either auditory, visual, or kinesthetic, they feel more of a connection. I have mixed feelings about it because a number of the NLP practitioners, there's a kind of disingenuousness, like we can use this as a way to maneuver people. However, if if your core intent is not to maneuver, but to connect with people kind of in their style, then uh, uh, then go do that. There's something that I've developed um, uh, for cross-cultural, cross-generational, cross-gender communication made simple. Let, let me run it by you because I'm I'm doing some work in China, Russia, and India, and it seems to be working well. And it's what I call uh, anticip- uh, I love the I come up with these acronyms. I have acronymophilia, I guess. <laughs> uh, and I call this one uh, anticipatory preventive humility, A.P.H. And what that means is if, uh, if you're starting to work with someone who's in a different uh, uh, department, a different generation, a different culture, a different gender, what anticipatory preventive humility is, is to say, you know, if we work together, there's a good chance that we're going to develop a relationship. And going forward, I know that there are people from my background, my culture, maybe even my uh, generation, maybe even my sex that will do things that could embarrass you in front of your people. And one of the last things I would ever want to do is to be interacting with you and especially interacting with you and people around you. And for you to have to explain to them, you know, who is the rude individual? Who is the uncouth individual? I wouldn't want to do that, uh, with you in a group. And I wouldn't want to do that with you in an, uh, as an individual. So going forward, if you can tell me what are the things that I must always do and what are some of the things that I must never do so that I never put you in that position, I will do my best to have that guide me.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, I was in Asia for very many years and uh, gosh, I went through that so many times and it's the, I think... You've got to blunder, but then you've got to face up to your blunder and go back to the person and say, hey, you know, the other day when I did that, I realized or somebody told me that was like totally the wrong thing to do. And now I get it. And now I will try never to do that again. So let me know if I'm doing stuff like that because it's going to help me learn. So you kind of put yourself in the student teacher mode um, and showing respect to the teacher. And it, it worked very, very well.
1: Yeah, you no, know, you know I think the way you recoup from a blunder or a mistake uh, uh, causes people's regard for you to to go up much higher than when you get something right. And in fact, um, one of the things that I will do with some of the people that I coach, and one of my phrases that I say, feel free to use this in your mind and yell at me when you use it. <laughs> And the phrase is opportunity for poise. Nice. So when there's a situation where you find yourself triggered, see flashing in your mind those words or hear me saying it. And and if you want to vent, if you want to say, I don't want to be poised. I want to rip this person's throat out. I don't care if this ends my career. I'm going to tell them what I think about them. Hear me saying to you opportunity for poise because when you can... Consistently demonstrate poise in a world that doesn't have a lot of it. It's a great differentiator.
0: Oh, for sure. And also, if you're. You know, if you're in an anger situation or an aggressive situation, what happens with your brain, it actually dumbs down because you're going to flight or fright mode. And if you can step away, become conscious of the moment and analyze and say, wow, I am I'm have a confrontation happening here. Joe must be angry about me for some reason. Why is he angry? By doing that, your intelligence actually goes up and it gives you a tremendous advantage over that person who is angry at you.
1: Absolutely. You know, th- th- that's that's – Similar, I actually like what you said better than what I suggest because sometimes what I'll, uh, I, I will suggest is when you're angry at the, another person, if you can answer the question, what's it like for them right now? But I like what you said because I think what's it like for them? I, I'm, I'm able to be reasonably empathic. I'm able to uh, stop and say, wow, they are really ticked off at me. And then I would follow up with that with, I wonder what that's about, why they might be ticked off of me. But I think you were very helpful to me because I realized that a number of people wouldn't know how to answer. What What do you mean what's it like for the other person?
0: Yeah, they're just being a jerk.
1: <laughs> no, there you go. There you go. So, but I, I, uh, so thank you for uh, what you just said because I think it will enhance – uh, my coaching with people in uh, in those situations.
0: Excellent. Just leave a small paper bag with unmarked bills at my door. It will be fine.
1: Hey, dude, you got it.
0: <laughs> um, before we go, where should people go to learn more about uh, Just Listen and your teachings?
1: Well, as I mentioned, they can go to patreon.com slash Dr. Mark Golston Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Dr. Mark uh, so all of my blogs everything's going to be fed there because I blog at Harvard Business Huffington Post Business Insider Fast Company Psychology Today um, you know I'm a guy who feels like since nobody in the world is listening to me I'm going to get even with them
0: <laughs> you're going to content them to death
1: There you go. And I also have a personal site, markgoulston.com. And so you can go there. And maybe one last thing is I'm the co-founder of something called Heartfelt Leadership, heartfeltleadership.com. And and our mission is creating a world that dares to care. And we have interviews with many uh, heartfelt leaders. And what we talk about is what caused them, kind of like what you we didn't really get into it, but you know the backstory about you know why. How did I discover that listening was so important? And uh, in heartfelt leadership, we ask people uh, who are known to be caring leaders, where did you dis- What are the values that are most dear to you, and how how did you learn them? Who'd you learn them from, and uh, how have they contributed to your success? So uh, I hope people will visit that site, heartfelt leadership, as well.
0: Wow. That's a lot of stuff to uh, to to get into. Um, you know, when you were mentioning there, something that triggered for me was you said, "Oh, I have a personal blog." What's the difference in the content in your personal blog compared to your other blogs?
1: Well, I can tell you, um, the difference is, uh, Harvard Business Review rejects any of my stuff that sounds too personal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay, it's a silo. <laughs>
1: there you go. It's a a silo. And uh, look, I, 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 uh, uh, if you go to HBR, we did an assessment. I did it. I came up with an assessment called how well do you communicate during conflict? And it's a 12 question assessment. It'll give you a score. uh, And then when you get your score, uh, whatever your score is, it'll lead you to all kinds of articles that will help you. We had 19,000 responders so uh, people can check that out, and uh, I work with uh, companies in China, so they're actually trying to push it out there to see uh, have people in China to take the quiz also. So if you want to see how well you communicate during conflict, see how poised or unpoised you are, go check that out.
0: We've been listening to Mark, Doctor Mark, and uh, his book, Just Listen. Awesome, awesome book. We didn't really get a chance to dig in too much of the book because we were having such a fantastic conversation and guess what? That's what the book's about, folks. Please check it out. It's a win-win situation. Mark, thanks for coming on the show and you have written other books and I'd love to have you come on again.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, there was actually a book that followed Just Listen called Real Influence, Persuade Without Pushing and Gain Without Giving In and that's an excellent book but I uh, But I guess the just listen has really caught on around the world. Interestingly, the rest of the world, including Canada, you know, Rotman Magazine interviewed me in Toronto, the business school uh, on listening. And the rest of the world is very more interested in my teaching listening than Americans are.
0: Well, there you go.
1: Well, I think think that tells you that the world views Americans as being too exceptionalistic and no, we want you to listen to us and I wish wish Americans would hire me more so I could uh, travel
0: less. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can only be, uh, what is it, you can only be a star, you can't be a star in your own neighborhood.
1: Uh, What is it, a prophet in your own, I forget what it's called. Yeah, it's so true,
0: it's so true. Mark, thanks for being on the show, I had a great time.
1: Thank you, and and thanks for bringing out uh, some good stuff. Uh, I couldn't have done it without you, man.
0: Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show, and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.